to Pericope, the Bible study for the Canterbury Episcopal Group at Columbia University. I am Ryan Karatko, the Episcopal Chaplain. This is an experimental approach to supplementing our weekly discussions with some related stuff about the Bible. It will be evolving for a while, so as you have feedback, I'll be glad to hear it. Our Bible study together is rooted in Scripture and conversation with each other and the awareness that God's love is not conditional. This semester's topic is good sex or God sex, a thematic reading of voices from Scripture to gain a greater understanding of sexuality and gender. If you want to read ahead for this week, which is sort of reading behind because we're picking up something we didn't quite get to last week, um, our pericope will be John 4, 1 through 30, which is when Jesus meets the woman at the well. So last week, we talked a little bit about the many voices within the Bible, and we talked about how reading it is like joining a conversation, and I'm sure we will be coming back to the dialogic nature of the Bible. But this week, I want to begin to think a little bit about how the Bible speaks to us and not just the different voices within it. So this is going to mean prying open something that sometimes seems can seem more obvious than it really is, which is, how do we know what the Bible is saying to us? This is exactly the kind of question that I think we have as young readers of the Bible, or even just young readers. I'm thinking about uh, my own children at the moment, who are three and five, and learning to engage with text. And some of the things that we take for granted about what a text means, they don't take for granted. Uh, They need to understand with the pictures or what it's saying to them or what their favorite part is or how things hang together. That is to say, it's not clear to them how it speaks to them. And some of that clarity of newness, that sort of beginner's mind, I think would be useful to us too. So there's a couple ways to get at this. So one is there's an old joke about the Bible. There's an old practice of reading the Bible and finding spiritual meaning for the day by closing your eyes and opening the Bible and flipping through the pages and letting your finger fall on a verse. And that's what God has said to you for the day. And in the old joke, someone does this once and their finger lands in Matthew and the verse that lands on is, and Judas went and hanged himself. Well, the person who did this thought this couldn't be exactly what God had meant for the day. So he closed his eyes again and opened it and, and it opened the Bible, put his finger down, set it down gently. And the verse said, go and do likewise. Exactly how we're supposed to understand the Bible has got to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. And I actually think it's probably most obvious with something like the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments might seem like the easiest test case for where the Bible is just speaking directly to us. Now, there's all kinds of reasons to suspect this is not exactly true or what it's commanding isn't is exactly clear, not least because it's a book on the shelf that was given to me, not mystically, but from Barnes and Noble, or maybe it was Amazon, or maybe it was given to you by a confirmation sponsor. But it's this strange text that's an edited conglomeration of a bunch of ancient scrolls. So what we do with that is always, I think, an interesting question. But let's just say the Ten Commandments, apodictic commands, they can be called commands that just have no, there's no causal statement in them. They're not saying, if you do this, then this happens. They just say, do this. Uh, I have seen a popular one on bumper stickers sometimes that says something like, thou shalt not kill. What's funny about this and thinking about this as a commandment, which might seem obvious to someone who has it as a bumper sticker, I I assume they mean that we, we shouldn't kill others, which I entirely support. 
But the commandment in the Bible isn't actually thou shalt not kill. If you were to look at it, it is thou shalt not murder. There's a perfectly good word in Hebrew for killing, but that's not the verb that's used in the Ten Commandments. The verb is murder because it's going to turn out that at least in the time of the Ten Commandments, it's going to make sense that there are reasons to kill people from time to time. Um, There's going to be all kinds of defenses about when that's okay and when that's not okay. What does a just war look like? What does the battle at Jericho look like as opposed to the battle at Ai, which is a very unjust battle where the people of Israel don't rely on God? There'll be all kinds of ways of parsing about when is it going to be okay for the state to take life? When is it going to be okay for Israel to take someone's life? So the commandment really is not thou shalt not kill thou shalt not murder. And Jesus is going to be a part of the tradition of trying to understand what this means. He somewhat famously or infamously finds um, a, a woman outside the gates convicted of adultery. Uh, and everyone who's gathered to stone her to death, to kill her, to take her life, uh, has broken the law because she was founded with another person, but that other person, presumably a man, should have been brought out to be stoned to death with her. There's all kinds of problems in the system. And, and Jesus very thoughtfully suggests that Anyone could throw a stone who was free of sin. And the the first one should just, the first one, the the one of you without sin, go ahead, throw it. That's totally fine. And everyone sort of slowly and sheepishly walks away. Jesus, too, seems to be parsing this question, when is it okay to kill another person? And he seems to say, well, maybe if we had a system of perfect justice. And he looks around and he says, is this a system of perfect justice? And everyone kind of goes away. Or maybe there's the one about not committing adultery, which might be more relevant for us in a conversation about sex and gender. The commandment about adultery really is not about betraying a marriage vow. But of course, Jesus is also going to offer riffs on this. He's going to say, no, no, no. Adultery is really about what happens in our heart. It's about the kind of desires that we have. But that makes this a way more complicated question and so much more than just saying, oh, there's a simple commandment. Don't commit adultery. So how do we know what the Bible is saying to us when the Bible itself is trying to refine what it's saying to us? We are somehow going to have to get involved in it. Now, I, I recall reading somewhere, and unfortunately, we, we, we don't have any fact checkers for this show, so I don't have anyone to pay to look this up for me. I'm pretty sure it's in a Rowan Williams article, and I'm almost sure he attributes it to Martin Luther. That Martin Luther once wrote that the first step to reading the Bible is to realize that it's speaking about us. And that's a really helpful place to start. If we think the Bible is talking about us, but not imagine that it's speaking to us or that we knew exactly what it says, but we know that it's speaking about us, about our concerns, about who we are, about who God is, then that lets us enter the conversation in a just much richer kind of way than imagining that if we just closed our eyes and pointed at a verse, we would solve all of our spiritual problems. Now, this might be something more complex than what we want, perhaps, uh, particularly maybe in a Bible study on sexuality and gender. I'm just thinking about being an adolescent when uh, growing up as an adolescent in Texas. Really, the question of sex was about, uh, and you won't be able to see the air quotes, but you'll hear them, how far was it okay to go? Um, what counted as sex? I mean, when, when, when I would have wanted advice about sex, I would have been looking for kind of a clear demarcated scale about what kinds of physical activity wouldn't be frowned on by the divine. But the Bible really doesn't offer that. It instead wants us to ask all kinds of other questions. For example, uh, last week we read the story of Rachel and Jacob, and it's a story that if anything wants to 
constantly push back and complexify questions, not what kind of physical activity might be licit, but with whom are we participating? What kind of power dynamics have shaped that? How have our families shaped us for this moment? Um, what, uh, who is at stake? How has money played into this moment? This is probably not something I wanted to hear when I was 15, if I were just to be totally honest. And yet, on the other hand, it is actually probably just the right set of questions. How did I end up in this situation with another human being? What kind of power dynamics have led me to it? Has money played a role in where we are? These are the kinds of questions that the Jacob and Rachel story seems to to lend itself to ask that rather than thinking about sex as a, a, a series of yes and no questions or a sliding scale of what might be okay, it's going to ask us demand that when we think about questions of sex, we're going to have to realize that we have to think about all kinds of other things at the same time. What is shaping me and my desire? Um, not just what is okay, but how would I know what's okay? What would be okay with another person? Uh, why do I want this? What is at stake in my wanting this? It's interesting, too, in that text, too, about Rachel and, and Leah and Jacob, that it ends up being a story about getting power back. It's a story about how Jacob has lost his power because he's a cheat and, and, and stole it with, along with his manipulative mother from his brother. And it'll turn out that he and his manipulative mother are a bit wiser than his brother and his dad. But nonetheless, it's hardly a functional family system. And Jacob has run away and he is slowly trying to figure out how to get his power back. He'll end up being betrayed by his future father-in-law. Uh, it'll turn out that he has all kinds of problems with dysfunctional family. But this step, finding this family, finding Rachel, finding Leah, who will have their own dysfunction, is yet going to be a step on the way toward finding his own sense of empowerment. I mean, this is the guy whose name's going to get his name changed to Israel, who's going to be the father of a whole nation. This is going to be a really key moment, finding a family that he can choose that he's going to be glad to be a part of. Rachel and Leah, again, will have their own kind of fights between each other, but both of them seem really glad to get away from a father who was happy to sell them off into marriage to the first stranger wandering past the well. They, too, will find ways to claim their sense of power. And maybe that, too, has something to do with sex, about the way in which um, sexual relationships can begin to help anchor us in the world in a different way, to claim our sense of identity and who we are. And so if we're going to think about questions of sex, we're going to have to think about, well, is this, is this relationship, uh, is what I'm looking for, is it setting me free to be who I am? Um, what kinds of dysfunction are, are, are attending to it? Because they may come from all kinds of dimensions, but are they building me up in a wonderful way? Are they moving me in a direction that's actually good for me, that's good for my partner? These are the kinds of questions I think that get leveraged when we think about scripture in a more complex way. And next week, uh, we'll spend some time beginning to think about some traditional ends of sexuality, some things that, that are traditionally good about them. But I think it would be so silly to be starting a Bible study about sex and not talk about God. I, maybe that's surprising. I don't know. You should read mystic medieval literature if you think that's surprising. But I, it, there's something about our desire for God and our desire for human contact and, and, and sexuality and intimacy 
that is all interconnected. And it's why we're reading John 4 this week, because John 4 is going to take up many of these same issues that come up with Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban. But it's instead going to focus it on Jesus and on God. And it wants to ask us some penetrating questions about what is satisfying for us about sex. Are we trying to satisfy a kind of ultimate desire, God's desire for us in the right kinds of ways? Are we aware of the ways in which we conflate these things? Are we aware in which these two things might help and support each other? The desire for another human being, for close contact, for intimacy, for the love of a neighbor, and the full love of God, that those things might be resonant with each other and yet not the same? So it's not going to be an accident as we pick up this story in in John that Jesus is at the very same well that Jacob was at and that he sits down with a woman when his with a woman and when the disciples arrive and see him talking with a woman there they're going to be mortified uh, terribly embarrassed and they're going to have a conversation that is about sex but also about God and about relationships and about what a kind of fullness of calling looks like some things to be thinking about as you as you read over and maybe pray and think about John this week. It is always striking in this passage to me how non-judgmental Jesus is. Often when this passage gets talked about, the woman at the well is often talked about as a harlot or a slut, or there's a certain kind of slut shaming that happens with her uh, in our conversation about her, but Jesus never seems to have that problem. He laughs that the the, the, the man she's currently living with is is the fifth man in her life and not her husband. But for all we know, Jesus seems perfectly aware that perhaps this is the happiest relationship of her life. Maybe she's finally gotten away from all of the abuse of people before. Jesus doesn't seem very judgmental of the situation in which she's found herself. Uh, it is odd, I think, and unfortunate that when this story is quoted, uh, sometimes it inevitably the, the, the shorthand for the woman at the well is, is um, a kind of slut shaming, a kind of harlotry. Uh, and it's interesting the kind of misunderstanding that happens is both of them are trying to talk about what it means to carry out desire, what that's going to mean for the two of them. So this will be our reading for the week. Uh, I hope that this introduction to beginning to think about how the Bible speaks to us is helpful or perhaps how it speaks about us. Uh, be well. And I look forward to our conversation. music this week is Cheery Monday by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at filmmusic.io and it's licensed under Creative Commons, license 4.0, where you can find all of the best free stuff to use. Uh, if you want to know more about the Episcopal Group at Columbia University, you can go to canterburynyc.org. That's C-A-N-T-E-R-B-U-R-Y-N-Y-C.org. And if you go to Uptown Home, you can learn more about our community and the various things that we're doing. This is Chaplain Ryan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>